Thanks, guys. It's one of the big things, as I often say, that we do when we come together is that we remind ourselves what life is all about. One of the most important questions that we can answer for ourselves and our lives is the question of what is it that God most wants for me? How you answer that question is going to determine the way that you live. What does God most want from me? That is such an important question. What God most wants from us is a relationship, a love relationship in which He is our Father and we are His children. That is the bedrock, the foundation of life. If you can understand yourself as a child of God and God as your loving heavenly Father, that will determine everything else in your life. And that relationship is marked by trust, a, a child-parent relationship. The crucial element in that relationship is the element of trust. God wants us to trust Him. And children, in the Gospels, we see Jesus using children as an example of what faith looks like. That's what God wants from us, that relationship. And so it's when that trust relationship gets broken or disturbed, when that connection of childlike trust with God, when that gets, in, when that gets broken, then everything gets broken in our lives. And today, I wanna spend some time looking at uh, Genesis chapter three and just looking at one, this one strand actually in this crucial uh, moment in Scripture and how this gets challenged at this point. From beginning to end of Scripture, this is the thing that is highlighted. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, and without faith, trust and faith, same word uh, in, in the Greek there. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Romans 1 verse 17 says, the righteous will live by faith, that childlike trust. In Genesis chapter two, uh, you might remember, because I assume that you memorize everything uh, that I say, uh, you might remember the, the setting in which God put two trees in the garden. He, well, there were, it was a, a, a garden situation when he said to the, uh, the first human beings, you can eat from any of the trees in the garden, just not the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And we asked the question, because as the story goes, they did eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that, that connection was broken. And we might well ask the question, well, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Why not put a big fence around it or something so that they couldn't get to it? Why, why make it so available to these to these people? Well, it's because God wanted a decision from them. Remember, God wants relationship and He wanted a decision from them. And trust, that trust is a, is a decision. We have to make a decision. Will we trust God? And when God set a boundary, He wanted them to respond in a way that declared their trust in Him. This is a kind of choice. Faith is a kind of choice. And today, as we continue to look at the second part of this story that um, we, we begins in Genesis chapter two after Genesis one, which is the creation uh, narrative. We see that here too, God allows something to make the human response explicit. God is going to allow something to happen to make this explicit. Not only has he put 
a tree in the garden, but he allows a demonic spiritual being who is absolutely, totally under God's power. This is not a rival power. It's under God's power, and yet, uh, yet a, a, a demonic spiritual being that is out, you know, uh, in rebellion against God, a tempter who is going to tempt human beings. And again, we could ask the question, why does God allow the tempter to come into the garden and tempt the first human beings to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And again, the answer is because God wanted to bring forth their choice. I I heard someone say once that Maybe uh, instead of telling Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the, good, uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God should have told them not to eat the snake. That would have been uh, maybe a better idea. But as it was, he allows, he allows the tempter to come in. Why? Why allow that? Because it makes the response explicit and God wants us to know how we are responding to Him. He wants to make explicit, are we responding in faith or are we not responding in faith? And God will put us in situations to polarise that. And we see that happening here. Well, as the story goes, they did eat, they were tempted, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And everything went into chaos after that. But from that time, God begins a process of redemption, of reconciling people to himself again. And this culminates in the work of Jesus Christ who makes this possible, who came to pay for our guilt so that we could be reconciled with God and be his children again. And it's interesting, what you see in the ministry of Jesus is Jesus reversing or in a sense redoing what the first human beings, what Adam should have done. He's coming as the second Adam to reverse what the first Adam is. And you see this in many respects, but we see this particularly in, uh, the, in Matthew chapter three and verse four. And I want just to have a look at this because in order to understand what went wrong in Genesis chapter three, in this narrative that we refer to as the fall narrative, it's important to have a look at what would it look like to get this right? In order to understand what went wrong, let's have a look at what it looks like to get this right. And this is what we see in Matthew chapter three and chapter four. So I'm gonna read uh, from verse 13, Matthew chapter three. It says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, no, no, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? In other words, why are you coming to me? And Jesus' answer is very interesting. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. In other words, he's saying, I must be baptized into humanity. When we baptize, we get baptized into God, into Christ. But when Christ was baptized, he was, this was a baptism of identification with the human race. And so he's saying, I must do this in order to, to fulfill all righteousness. That is to get right what the first Adam got wrong. That's why he had to do this. Then it says in verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. 
At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Throughout the Bible, uh, animals, you know, I've talked a little bit about the theological significance of numbers. I talked about that in relation to Genesis chapter one. Um, wherever you see animals often in scripture, there's a real theological significance even to animals. There's a lot of theology in the Bible, amazingly. Um, and we see that here, and we see that, that, that this contrast between the dove that comes upon Jesus and, and the serpent. Anyway, uh, it goes on, verse 17, this is the crucial pit. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus is coming to demonstrate what it looks like to be a child of God. I think this is even the significance of when God came to us in Jesus Christ, he was born as a baby. He's, he is, he's showing us what it looks like to be a child of God. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Remember I said, this is the base reality. That's the foundation of everything. And so when the second Adam comes, that's the foundation that is laid. And God said, just like in Genesis chapter one, this is my son, this is my child, whom I love with him, I am well pleased. Foundation of this reality, it's the foundation of our reality, that relationship. So it's no surprise that it's therefore that relationship that is going to come under attack. No surprise. And so it goes on in Matthew chapter four. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Should to be tempted by the wouldn't you expect he should be led away from that, not to that? But he's led to that again. Why? Because he's going to make a decision. Because a decision is going to come to the fore, and it's going to be very clear here in the place of temptation. The decision is going to be made clear. So he was led by the, uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No kidding. Verse three. Then the tempter, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, if you are, see, he's sowing doubt here. Are you real? No, come on. You're... Is God, did God really say that you're the, if you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. Like God's not looking after you, is he? So you take it into your own hands, turn these stones into bread. Verse four, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a, a quote from Deuteronomy chapter eight, which is all about trust. That what you need more than bread is that you need to hold on to the promises of God from every word that comes from the mouth of God. No, he's saying, no, I'm trusting in God. And that's how he resists temptation. That's his shield of faith. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that your foot will not strike against a stone. Notice that, that the devil here quotes from scripture. 
is quoting from Scripture to twist it. Now, he doesn't actually go on to quote the bit, that's from Psalm 91, which goes on to say, uh, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra, you will crush the head of the serpent. He doesn't quote that bit. Uh, So he's very selective, you'll notice. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, right? I'll look after you. I turn to me. I will, all this I will give you. In other words, you will be like God. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. That's what Adam and Eve should have done. That's what they should have done. Now, let's have a look at what they did do and see the contrast. Genesis chapter three, I'm just gonna make a comment here on the first three words here. It says here, now the serpent. And there's no explanation about this in the text, but in the ancient Near East, everyone knew who this guy was. See, throughout the stories of the ancient Near East, one common factor is that there is this malevolent being called uh, the serpent, uh, it's, he's cast in many, uh, many slightly different forms, but always a serpent, right? And he's identified with the forces of chaos and death. This serpent in all the different Egyptian and Mesopotamian and uh, Canaanite, all of these, uh, all of their their myths had this this figure, this malevolent creature. They all knew who this guy was, the serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So it's being very careful to say this is, this is not a God, this is just a creature. He said to the woman, did God really say? He said to the woman, did God really say? You see, he's sowing doubt. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree? in the garden, what's wrong with that? Did God say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that. So he's really muddying the waters here. Sounding, it's making God sound pretty stingy. Did God say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? God's withhold, this is the the big thing that, that is happening here. The tempter is trying to convince him, God's withholding something from you, but I can give it all to you, you see. Just take, take your life in your own hands. Well, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, what's wrong with that bit? There's a little bit that she adds there, isn't it? She's just, the waters have been a bit muddied and God's looking a bit sort of, you know, a little stricter and stingier than he did, you know? And so the bit that she adds, who can tell me what what bit is added there? Yeah, you must not touch it. God didn't say that. 
<laughs> he didn't say you can't even touch it. I mean, it's probably best not to, but you know, like you see the point here. She's, suddenly this is being cast in a slightly, this is being tinged. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, again, God is withholding something from you. You can't trust God. He's withholding something from you, something that you want, something that you desire, right? God's, God's keeping it from you. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. That word desirable right there. It's the same word that in the 10 commandments is rendered in our English translations, covet. It's the same word, to covet, right? Because she is being convinced that there's something that will bring her satisfaction that God hasn't given her, right? And so she's gonna look over the fence because her trust is being shaken. Oh, you can't really trust God. He's, he's keeping something for you because he knows that when you eat of it, you're gonna be like God. Oh, and he doesn't want that. He's keeping something. You can't, don't, you can't trust God. I tell you, it's heartbreaking. Imagine, those of you who are parents, imagine if somehow your children were convinced, oh, no, no, you can't trust your mum and dad. They don't, they're not for your well-being. Oh, no, they're just using, oh, no, that, if that happened, honest, if that happened to my children, that would be the most heartbreaking thing. If my children came to believe that and that they ceased to trust me. But that's what's happening here. So when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, interestingly, uh, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Do you see what they just did then? They made coverings for themselves. They realized, oh, there's a problem here, but we're gonna sort the problem out ourselves. They made coverings for themselves. Why? Because they've separated themselves, right? We take things into our own hands anymore. Now. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's an interesting expression. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Man, this is rich. This chapter, every line of this chapter is so rich in theological content. This is not just a naive story as some uh, would like to cast it. This is richly theological. Every single line of this. Wherever godly people are, Often through scripture, when godly people are described, it's often said of them that they walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. This is what God wants. He wants to walk with us as our Father 
with his children. And so this is very important. God comes and he wants to walk with them, but tragically, they are nowhere to be found. They are hiding from the God that they should be trusting. And then the most heartbreaking words, some of the most heartbreaking words in the Bible, I think. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? And I, I believe today that God may be calling that, maybe to you. Maybe you feel so ashamed. Maybe you're hiding. Maybe you've taken things into your own hands. Maybe you've been tempted to not trust God, to believe that you can't trust God. Maybe you've been drawn away and you're just taking your life in your own hands and you know that God's there, but you, it's, and maybe God is calling to you, where are you? And he wants you to realise where you are. And he wants you to understand how you got there. Because children don't hide. This doesn't look like trusting children. Children don't hide, be scared of their parents. I mean, the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, but that's absolute regard for God. That's what that means. No, this is, this is God is scary. I've got to hide from God. God, God. God does not mean well for me. That's what's happening here. This is tragic. Imagine if your children cowered and ran away from you because they didn't trust that you meant for their good. You know, I've often wondered, why is it that the thing that God most wants, trust, why is it that the thing that God most wants is in my experience, the hardest of all things to get right? I don't know about you, but I have found throughout my walk with God, the thing that I think I've most failed in is this, is trusting God. Why is it so hard to trust God? And I believe it's because we have believed the greatest lie that was ever told. This is the greatest lie that was ever told and it's being told and told and told and told. There is nothing that the tempter works harder to do than to undermine this relationship with God. And God allows this because He wants us to make a choice. Will you trust me or will you not trust me? And so we need to realise that what one of the key reasons why this is so hard is because there is constantly the voice of the tempter saying, oh, no, no, you can't trust God. No, no, you need to take that into your own hands. Don't trust God. No, God's scary. Oh, no, He's gonna lead you somewhere where you don't wanna go where God is gonna lead you. So just take it into your own hands. That is the greatest lie ever told. Because the Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. And when God is my shepherd, I will not be in want. And he leads me to green pastures and beside quiet waters and he restores my soul. That is what God your father will do. 
but the tempter won't tell you that. And it's interesting that God wants that so much. He wants that faith from you so much that he will lead you into circumstances. We see this throughout the Bible, that God leads his people into circumstances where their faith or lack of faith will become very, very clear so that they will know either you're trusting in God or you're not trusting in God. I think sometimes we pray that God would lead us, Lord, lead me to a place where I won't have to trust you as much. Good luck with that prayer. I, that's not gonna get, you know, that's, that's one that he's not gonna answer. Why? Because he wants to lead you to places where you have to trust him, where you're reminded to trust God. Every single day, it's not the big moments, it's the little moments. The little moments where you have to make a decision, right, am I gonna take things into my own hands? Am I gonna go my own way here or am I gonna trust God? God is looking for your trust. And he's leading you into situations again and again and again. It's like we always have the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every single day in little decisions, which tree are you gonna eat from? Are you gonna trust God or are you gonna play God? Because God wants to make this choice very explicit. And I believe God is calling us to a place of deeper, deeper faith, of deeper trust. He's calling you to come in deeper, to let the weight of your life fall into His hands, to surrender completely. I'm learning to do this. And the more I do this, the more peace I find the more invulnerable I feel. Not invulnerable to hardship because there will always be hardship in this life. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards. That's what Job said. That's true in this life. But in the midst of that, you can have peace and joy. Why? Because you know in whose hands your life is. I'm learning that there is this amazing peace for us to find, but we have to trust deeply in God. And my greatest regret, you know my greatest regret as I look back on my 35 odd years of walking with God in a very imperfect way, my greatest regret is that I have not trusted God as I should have. I have not trusted God. He has always shown himself faithful. As I look back, Oh, he has always come through. He has always shown himself faithful. It doesn't mean he's always given me everything that I wanted. I mean, thank, uh, like, thank God that he didn't always give me everything that I always wanted. But he has always been faithful. I have no excuse not to trust God. You have no excuse not to trust God because he is faithful. He is always faithful. And today, I'd like us together to say what one man said when he came to Jesus. And Jesus asked him if he believed, that is, if he, if he would trust, really trust. And I, I've always loved the response of this guy. He said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Who wants to pray that prayer? Let's I think that's a good prayer. Lord, we believe, 
help our unbelief.